Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind, the podcast hosted by the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, which is the center for early in career professionals in the tech policy field. I'm Rima Musa, and I am your host, and I am joined by the wonderful Lama Muhammad. Uh, and we're going to get into some news before we jump into the bulk of today's episode, which is a feature on Class 4 Foundry Fellow, Caitlin Chin, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. Thanks for having me, Rima. Always a pleasure to be here. So before we dive in, a full disclaimer that the news and opinions discussed on this segment do not reflect the opinions of the organizations, institutions, and companies that we are associated or work at. We are simply just two young women making sense of the tech policy world. And with that, Rima, would you like to start us off with some headlines this week? In a new round of Twitter news, uh, which it seems like there's new headlines coming out of Twitter and Elon Musk on the daily these days. Um, On Monday, Elon Musk claimed in a series of tweets that Apple had threatened to remove uh, Twitter from the App Store um, as a part of Apple's uh, app review and moderation process. Uh, Musk has also said via tweet that he will create a new smartphone um, to act as a competitor to Apple should Apple follow through. We'll see if this actually practically becomes a thing, but we'll be following it. Thanks for that recap, Rima. And similar lines on the big tech-related news, um, shifting to what's happening in the EU, um, Amazon may be able to end two European Union antitrust investigations by the end of the year after altering concessions to address antitrust concerns over its use of sellers' data. So this case has been going on for a couple of months now, but in July, Amazon responded to these charges regarding its size, power, and data to push its own products to gain unfair advantage over competitor merchants that also use its platform. They refrain from using seller's data in its own competing retail business by using a private label and products. So we may see the European Commission sort of accept Amazon's binding proposals and then Amazon will be free of these charges. But if they decide to not, we may also see this request of breaking up the idea of Amazon's marketplace from its retail logistics operations to sort of help avoid anti-competitive practices, which many nonprofits have decided to tell the European Commission to do. Um, but that's on that's on Amazon. Thanks, Lama. And to wrap us up before we get into our chat with Caitlin. There's some interesting stuff happening in the world of children's privacy. And from the federal side, a lot of the controversy this week is coming from the Kids Online Safety Act, uh, otherwise known as COSA. 
So this week, a number of civil society organizations, including the ACLU, the Center for Democracy and Technology, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Wikimedia Foundation, and others, wrote a letter opposing the act that would supposedly establish responsibilities for websites that are likely to be accessed by kids to act in their best interest. But these civil society organizations in their letter have stated the problematic uh, components of the bill in that it has a burdensome uh, and vague duty of care that would be imposed supposedly to prevent harms to minors for a whole range of online services. But these, you know, laudable aims of, of you know, reducing harassment, exploitation, uh, damage to mental health um, for minors would potentially actually have damaging unintended consequences in that could actually be abused. Um, in order to curtail access to information such as sex education resources, LGBTQ resources. It'll be interesting to see where this bill goes, particularly here at the end of the year, um, and if you know these issues will carry on into 2023. We'll see how this, how this all pans out and if this bill actually ends up going anywhere. But Um, Sort of interesting parallels also to be made with the age-appropriate design code out of California. And with that, we are going to get into our chat with Caitlin. Thanks for tuning into this segment on the news, and we'll see you next time. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Doing good. Thanks for thanks for coming on. So just jumping straight into it, what do you do and what got you started into the field of tech policy? So I am a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a public policy think tank here in Washington, D.C., and I've actually been working in the think tank space for about three years. I started as a research assistant at the Brookings Institution and then moved over to CSIS earlier this year. Um, but I first got, got started in tech policy entirely by accident. <laughs> I had no idea that I was interested in privacy or antitrust before maybe, I, I guess, before attending grad school. But I had the opportunity to intern with the Government Affairs Office of VMware, which is a cloud and cybersecurity company, and Verizon, which really made me interested in privacy and cybersecurity and tech. I majored in political science and public policy, so I was really interested in learning how corporations interact with the government, how... Um, the legislative process works, but I found that I was really interested in the tech side of things. Um, So in 2019, I saw that Brookings had a position open for a research assistant, and I applied, and almost entirely by accident, I I found myself in the think tank space. 
So I want to dig into your time at Brookings a little more. What did your work look like when you were there? So at Brookings, I primarily focused my research on federal privacy and antitrust legislation. I worked under the direction of fellows at Brookings who primarily focused on privacy and antitrust. We conducted roundtables, we held private meetings, and conducted interviews with stakeholders who um, in these areas from really, really a diverse set of backgrounds ranging from privacy and civil liberties advocates to corporations to Hill staffers. We also published blog posts and longer reports to communicate technology policy issues to broad audiences. Um, my, my day-to-day at Brookings really, really varied. Um, it was really exciting, though, working at Brookings from 2019 to 2022, just because so much happened in that space. And I felt like I had a really close-up view of like the 2020 elections, um, of really exciting tech policy developments that have happened over the past three years as well. So you've been in the DMV for some time now, from doing your undergrad at the University of Maryland to your MPP at Georgetown. So how has being in DMV area affected your lens on uh, these privacy issues that you mention and your career path more generally? I think, first of all, being living in D.C. for the past nine years has definitely affected both my viewpoint and my career path. I actually got started in tech policy while I was still in school. I interned at VMware and Verizon while completing my MPP, and I actually started working at Brookings also, I guess also while completing my master's degree in public policy. So I was really fortunate that I was able to work in D.C. while also study public policy. And I also got to take classes that directly related to what I was currently working on. So I took, um, for example, a class on tech policy. I was able to cross-register for a privacy law class at Georgetown Law while finishing my MPP. Um, and it was, it could be pretty chaotic sometimes working and studying at the same time, but I was also really fortunate because I really loved everything I was doing. Um, and I think to your first question, how has living in DC affected my lens on privacy issues? I definitely feel like my current focus and research interests on federal domestic policy have really been shaped by living in DC. Right now, I currently focus on privacy and antitrust, and a lot of my work concerns what the U.S. Congress is doing on these issues. But I, I do think that I, I, I do think that recent developments have really demonstrated that tech policy can disproportionately affect people who live outside the D.C. area as well. I know with the Supreme Court's reversal of Wade, for example it really demonstrates that sometimes privacy risks can disproportionately impact people depending on their state laws or state restrictions. So even though data collection is a problem everywhere, somebody living in a state, for example, where uh, with tougher abortion restrictions may experience disproportionate effects of the Dobbs decision. You bring up a great point there of how privacy issues no longer live exclusively in the sphere of uh, the DMV 
area and per, and perhaps they never have but um that i think for a long time has has been the sentiment but i think you're right that since um the reversal of roe v wade with the dobbs decision uh there is almost a an ev- evangelization of concern for privacy as it relates to reproductive rights and um and you know safety from uh from enforcement of potentially really restrictive uh abortion laws so i guess in that context it's been a really interesting time for the federal side of privacy with the ADPPA uh, now sort of in, in the works and in the mix of the, the privacy regime that we're seeing in the U.S. What's your take on the arrival, so to speak, of uh, an actual federal data privacy law? Right. And the, I have to say that ADPPA has really been a long time coming. <laughs> Back in 2020, some of my colleagues at the Brookings Institution, Cam Carey, John Morris, Nicole Turner-Lee, and myself co-authored a report that proposed a comprehensive framework for bipartisan privacy legislation, combining, essentially combining elements of privacy bills and proposals that we've seen on both sides of the aisle. And at the time, this report was, this this report proposed compromises that had not yet been a, ma- a part of the mainstream privacy discussion. Um, for example, middle ground solutions for preemption and private right of action. Um, so it is very exciting two years later after that report to see that some of these compromises are, some of these, some middle ground solutions are now being, are now a bigger part of the privacy debate. Um, And it is also amazing to see just in general how far privacy legislation has come in a relatively short period of time. I remember I first started working in privacy in 2018 when I interned with Verizon's privacy policy team. And when I was a summer intern, this was the same summer that um, the the Supreme Court's Carpenter decision was released. It was the same summer that it was the same summer that um, California passed it, the CCPA, and also the GDPR came into effect. And at the time, we didn't have we didn't have a viable, comprehensive privacy bill. Now, now. Four years later, I had to do the math in my head. We do have the ADPPA. We have the Consumer Privacy Rights Act, the Consumer Online Privacy Rights Act, and the Safe Data Act, all which do have very similar elements in common. All of these bills propose data minimization. They propose boundaries on how businesses collect, process, and share personal information. They have right. They have provisions for civil rights or algorithmic algorithmic discrimination for the most part. And, um, and and so there is a lot of there is a lot of consensus and there is a lot of common ground on privacy legislation. It's just a question of getting it across the finish line, which as we know is not always the easiest thing to do in the current Congress. 
Absolutely. So you mentioned the report that you co-authored while you were at Brookings. And in general, you're incredibly active in writing and creating reports on these issues of algorithmic bias, free speech, privacy. Tell us a little bit more about what some of these reports that you've worked on uh, entail. Yeah, so at both Brookings and CSIS, writing is a major part of my job. I write both long-term research reports as well as shorter commentaries or publications to communicate technology policy issues to a pretty wide audience. Um, I, I think it's really exciting. I mean, I love writing and I mean, one of the, I guess, the primary role of think tanks is to communicate really complex issues to different audiences, whether these issues are complex technically or legally or politically. And we do work with a really diverse range of individuals, some of whom have very, um, like, very intimate knowledge of these subjects, others who are not as familiar with the day-to-day of privacy development. So I, I really enjoy writing. I think that, um, I, I think that publishing reports and commentaries is just a really great way to make sure that access to information is out there and to communicate these really important topics to, to broad audiences. Yeah, and I think that's a, a common desire uh, within the tech policy community is to sort of bridge the gap between um, more technical audiences, perhaps uh, policy and and legal folks, and then, you know, the everyday person as well, who maybe isn't so steeped in, in these issues on a day-to-day basis. What are you looking forward to now? Do you have any exciting opportunities or other career plans on the horizon? I have to say one of the things that I'm most looking forward to um, is to, I, I, I know this sounds simple, but getting to meet people in person in a way that maybe was less possible two years ago or even one year ago. Um, I'm really excited that I've joined the Internet Law and Policy Foundry because I think, I mean, it's really exciting to get to meet people who are interested in the exact same thing that you are. And, and it, and um, I guess the other thing is, I mentioned that I recently joined CSAS from Brookings earlier this year. And at Brookings, I mainly focused on federal domestic policy issues. Now that I'm at CSAS, uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm also expanding to global issues as well. So I'm really enjoying getting to write and podcast and speak about privacy and antitrust as it affects a, a wide range of communities. That's great. And yeah, I've definitely been missing the in-person element myself and always so excited whenever I I get the opportunity to connect with people in real life just makes it real. So uh, I think that that we have that to look forward to, at least, and, you know, hopefully within these next couple of months. 
Oh, I was just saying, I, I really hope so too. I, I, there have been people who I've met for the first time in person this year who I've actually been talking to over email or Zoom for a couple of years now. And I agree that even though obviously technology is great and I mean, there are perks to re working remotely, you can't really replace in-person interaction. <laughs> I hear that. Do you think that there's some element of working in this tech space that uh, is more conducive to, to sort of staying online in the sense that, um, that, you know, because we're tech people in theory, uh, we're more inclined to continue to use these sort of technical tools for communication? Or do you think that there's just as much desire to go back to that in-person element within the tech community? You know, that's a really great question. I have to say, I love remote work for the most part, and I am a tech person. So with that <laughs> very large sample size of one person, it does seem like there's <laughs> there. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I do have a lot of friends who work outside the tech policy space who also really love remote work and who don't want to go back to the office. I do think that here in 2022, technology has just become such a large part of our lives. Um, most, many, many Americans use smartphones, internet connected devices, laptops, tablets on a daily basis. We access dozens, if not hundreds, of websites and apps on a weekly basis. You know, technology has just become so steeped in what we do. Um, I know, I, I think, I mean, I personally use technology for almost every aspect of my life, whether it's school or communicating with friends or coordinating social activities. And that is another reason why what, we, we're, what we're working on tech policy is so important. I mean, it is really important to think about maybe the privacy implications of data collection, for example or the apps and websites that we use and how competition policy may influence that. It's, technology is just, it's something that affects everybody. Absolutely. And I wanna dig a little deeper on that because you, you sort of alluded to how um, the personal tie to technology that you have and, and just how prevalent it is in your daily life, which I think many, many people can relate to, um, is important for, for informing our work in this space. But for you personally, how do you find that your personal life uh, impacts your drive to, to continue forward in this tech policy space? I will say that before I started working in tech policy and privacy, before 2017, <laughs> I had never read a po privacy policy. I didn't really think about the data collection implications of the various websites and apps that I was using. Now, though, all of that has changed. I do think about privacy and digital surveillance on almost a, di on almost a daily basis. I mean, I... Of course, like any other American, I still use a lot of websites or apps that, you know, 
track me and collect data, it's almost impossible to escape. But I, I do think that now I do, I do think about the technology policy implications in my daily life. On a broader scale, though, I, I think I've also started to realize how much technology impacts society. When I vote in elections, um, even the political advertisements that I see or the posts that I see on social media, that's all dictated in some way by tech policy. And I think it's really important to think about how technology impacts society. I sometimes hear in my work people saying, like, you know, you work in tech policy, you should focus on technology and not write about society. But I think that's, I, I think that distinction is, I mean, it's artificial, really. Like, a lot of the work that we do in privacy, like, privacy has implications on society. So does artificial intelligence and antitrust. And I mean, it's it's so interesting how there's, such a disconnect between these sort of technical questions and society or policy or um or you know even economic questions uh because if you think of sort of the original purpose of the internet and you know technology and innovation in general it's to improve people's lives um which is ultimately a a societal question. So I agree that integrating that component of uh, what's the impact on, you know, our communities, um, both on a local level and, you know, also globally, as you mentioned, you're starting to, to dig into more. I think that's really important. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, I guess it lends to a broader question itself, which is what even is technology policy? Tech policy encompasses so many different aspects. And also it has roles for so people of so many different backgrounds, whether that's um, engineers or attorneys or policy professionals like myself. Tech policy is just so broad and diverse. And I think that's why I really enjoy working in tech policy Technology really does affect so many different sectors and so many aspects of our lives. And it's something that's constantly changing, constantly presenting new challenges. And I, I personally think it's one of the most exciting spaces to work in. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm the producer, editor, and host of the show, and want to give a huge shout-out and thank you to our whole team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry for making this podcast come to life, especially Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, and Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator.